This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, did we have a good weekend? Very nice. How about you? That was nice. Uh, we, we drove over to Graham, Texas, and uh, had a little thing with some uh, friends of ours there and uh, got to drive through, went through Mineral Well, saw the old Baker Hotel, see if the, any progress is being made on restoring that. Um, any ghosts is, come out and get you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no ghosts there. You know, the, the, the surprising thing for me is I haven't spent that much time in Mineral Wells, but there's another hotel in town as well, and, and uh, it has been renovated and taken over by a very prominent uh chef and they've got a second uh bar and kitchen i think is what they call it it's very nice but the striking thing to me was that this is a huge hotel as well not as big as the baker but it's like this little town has these two huge hotels in it uh that was quite a that was quite a uh a venture they went off of back is that one haunted now i don't know if that one's haunted or not uh but anyway it's interesting it's interesting. I watched football. What did you do, David? I did the same for many hours. This went it was from exciting I, stuff. Yeah. Well, again, I, I do like it because the two games are so different, right? They weren't. I think everybody loves shootouts, and the second one was that. But there's also something to be said for just a grind it out, you know, tough, sloppy game with a lot of penalties and see where it goes. That was the first game. I also went to Fan Fest this weekend, Rangers Fan Fest. I saw yes, that. A little different, little different atmosphere than in the past, maybe? Well, <laughs> they did a Q&A with Chris Young, and there were no cues for him. Um, they did it the first thing in the morning, which is part of the reason I don't think there were fans there. But the other thing is that there were so many people there. I think it was sold out like 10,000 people. People were standing in line and I talked to a couple of people and usually I get like complaints from people, you know, I can't believe these autograph lines are this long. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. Cause there's nothing more angry than a collectible guy being denied his autographs. But, um, the couple of people that I ran into, they were like, yeah, the lines were really long and it took a while to get in. Uh, but we just went over and saw the World Series trophy. It was cool. It's it's amazing how Rob Manfred's hunk of metal just really does make people happy. Um, they really are happy. And that was that was cool to see. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Uh, before we get into our football talk. Uh, I wanted just to uh, acknowledge a tip of the cap to David Cass Stevens, former Dallas Morning News sports columnist and feature writer. Uh, his tenure lasted from 1980 
to 1990. Uh, one of the really uh, uh, excellent sports writers of my generation, or any for that matter, uh, and uh, a sweetheart of a guy as well. Uh, a great talent, and uh, I, I grew up reading David uh, when he was at the Houston Post in very formative years for me when I first wanted to be a sports writer, and he had a, a big influence on me. Uh, David went about his business a little differently from a lot of other uh, big-time sports writers, and, uh, and he made that path of his own, and he did a great job at it. Uh, so sorry to see him go at 77. His but but it says how good he was and what a great guy he was that even others who did it differently respected the way he went about it, you know, which, it, which isn't always the case. Other, his peers had the ultimate respect for him as well. And again, as, as wonderful of a writer as he was, he was an even better person. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. I, I, I told the story in his old bit uh, that, uh, you know, when I was covering the Southwest Conference, you would go to a game with David and he fretted over his stuff tremendously, whether whatever he was going to write. And then when he decided on something, he was the last guy out of the press box. Um, but I can remember sitting there next to him and David would say, well, what do you think I should write? And I I gave him two or three ideas, and they were always X's and O's related, something about the coaches, something about, you know, the, where this team now is and, you know, in the conference race, that type of stuff. And then, then David would nod, and then he'd write about the mascot. Uh, so that was – that's just who he was. But as David said, I I, I have such an appreciation for uh, wonderful writing, and uh, I really didn't care what David wrote. It was always good. He never wrote a bad column. They were always entertaining. They were always well executed. Uh, and so in my mind, it was never an issue. Uh, he, he was always great. And he, he had a very keen eye for, for the, the eccentricities of sports and the characters involved in it. And uh, he just couldn't let those things pass. You know, <laughs> to him, that was more important than a lot of this other stuff. And as Randy Galloway pointed out, uh, it was a great a combination of uh, columnists of the morning news when when it was Blackie and Randy and David, three very different uh, styles. Uh, we we kind of covered the gamut with those three. I don't think that David was as appreciated as he should have been, frankly, uh, but I, I, he certainly was in my estimation. So at any rate, a tip of the cap to David. Uh, so let's talk about the uh, conference championship games. Uh, they were, uh, I wouldn't, Certainly, the the San Francisco Detroit game was very entertaining. Uh, Kansas City and Baltimore, not so much. Uh, Lamar Jackson, another fold uh, in the conference championship game. I was just, uh, uh, frankly, a little surprised that this has continued to happen now. And uh, uh, David, I know you looked up some of his numbers uh, in the postseason, uh, or you looked up a lot of quarterbacks' numbers in the postseason, just in, in comparing those. Give us an idea of, uh, first of all, what his is and then how that compares. Well, yeah, just uh, quickly, you know, just the, the trajectory and the narrative between him and Dak is, is very comparable in my mind in a lot of ways. And I believe we talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, but but let's take this back to like that first, second week in December when people were debating whether or not uh, Lamar Jackson or Dak Prescott would win the MVP. They were both in the race. And then 
Lamar Jackson's numbers the rest of the regular season compared to Dak clearly put distance between them. And Lamar Jackson did it against some of the top teams, right? Uh, where, where Dak just had a horrible game against Buffalo, uh, didn't play that well against Miami either and finished it out. It, it was a much different feel. Um, and then, so Dak goes out in the, in the first round and it's like, well, look, now that, that debate's not even, you know, forget that. Now another quarterback has peeled away from Dak in this whole argument on where he ranks. And then you see Lamar Jackson play the way he did in that game. And now you come back and you take a step back and Dak Prescott is two and five in the postseason his career. Lamar Jackson is two and four and both seem to play their worst games in the postseason. And to, to take a step back from that and kind of put the lens on the, the Cowboys and Dak Prescott even more, um, you know, so often we hear about this drought, um, you know, well, it's 28 years and counting this team. Look at all the other teams that have gotten to the conference championship when the Cowboys have and look at the Super Bowls, all this. Um, and, and that understandably frustrates a lot of these players because it's like, look, we're not a part of all that. We understand it. We haven't done it either. But why are we responsible for these 16, 20 years before we got here? So I went back and looked at just since Dak Prescott has been in the league, 2016. There are 13 quarterbacks in the league that have had one more postseason games than Dak Prescott since 2016. Blake Bortles and Case Keenum have done what Dak hasn't done, which is get a team to a conference championship game. And also in that span, you've had 17 teams reach the conference finals. Dallas not among them. So even if you narrow the sample size down from the 28 to the eight years in which Dak has played, uh, you see the exact same pattern uh, playing out. Yeah, that's that's amazing, you know. Uh, and uh, I think this is always a, a a good discussion because you know my email is filled up and and whatever else uh, correspondence I get or notification on Twitter or whatever from people saying they'll never win with Dak as their quarterback, which is to me obviously uh, an ignorant argument uh, that. Worst quarterbacks than Dak Prescott have gotten to a Super Bowl and won one. Uh, that that's not a good argument, but it is undeniable what the narrative is, right? And it's just like it's, and, sure. it, and you're right; it is pretty much the same kind same as with Lamar Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, you know they're they're very similar quarterbacks and uh, in the in their uh, in their postseason records, uh, and uh, so and I, and I would make the case that I I think that uh, historically. Uh, Lamar Jackson has had a better supporting cast and a, and a, a more well-balanced team around him than Dak has had as well. I mean, I'm you know John Harbaugh is a pretty great coach, uh, and I don't think people would argue much with his uh, track record. So it's it's interesting to see these two quarterbacks uh, and and where they are, and, and until you get over that hump, I mean, I, I just think that this is it's justified. 
you know, what what do you say? I mean, you, at some point you would, I would, I guess I would like to see these two guys acknowledge that, that yes, until I get over this, until I get to a national championship or until I get to a conference championship game, uh, then this criticism of me is deserved. Well, and this is what's, what, when you're talking tiers and what tier a quarterback belongs on and where their place in history is, this is, these, these are the moments that, that, order quarterbacks this this is what uh this is what the discussion's about you have look troy what was always the conversation with troy aikman his postseason numbers were better than his regular season <laughs> they were right and you've had that with and it's not just a quarterback position it's across all sports there are certain players that rise to the occasion in key moments and, and just to give the counterpoint and look no one else is in Patrick Mahomes' class at the quarterback in this league right now. There's No one is going to debate that. No one. But it struck me watching that first game, you know, Mahomes, he was accurate, but he wasn't doing otherworldly stuff in the first half of that game against Baltimore. But he just did what he needed to do, made the plays early in the game, and that changed the whole tempo of the game. And, you know, sometimes people say, you know, look, it's not about the plays you make. It's more than just the plays you make. It's when you make them. And a lot of people want to say, well, a play late carries more weight. That's not always the case if you make the right plays early to change the whole course of the game and how it's played. And I thought Patrick Mahomes did that. And the other reason that stood out to me was if you didn't know Patrick Mahomes' reputation, you wouldn't say, oh, this guy, look at what he's doing. I mean, no, there's no one like him. You would have said, well, that was a good, efficient first half by that guy. And then I got back to how poorly Dak Prescott has played in the first half of his postseason appearances, where he constantly puts the team in a position where they have to play catch up the rest of the way. And it's just... There's so many different entry points into the argument about where a quarterback ranks, and it's not just it's not just the stats. Because if we did it just on the stats, look, Dak threw for 406 yards and three touchdowns in the loss to Green Bay. That's a pretty good game, right? Yeah. If you watch the game, you have a completely different assessment. Yeah, but I, it's it's hard. You, you know, you can talk about tears, and we can talk about the similarities between Dak and Lamar. And as you said, it's 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 um. It's hopeless to compare those guys to to Mahomes, um, and we can talk about that Mahomes didn't do anything otherworldly compared to maybe some of his other playoff games, right? Yeah, uh, but that's because he has done otherworldly stuff. He's done the otherworldly stuff, yeah. And the Chiefs have gone to six consecutive AFC championships with Patrick Mahomes. Um, he's been the consistent. He and Andy Reid have been the consistencies there, um, and, and so it, it, I think it's. In whatever regard, it's unfair to Dak and and Lamar Jackson to to compare them to to Mahomes. Kevin was years ahead of the rest of the league predicting that Patrick Mahomes was going to be a a generational quarterback, and and he has been. He's proven to be he's proven to be all of that. Um, so I, I I guess my only my only nitpick there is yeah it's it's hard for me to like say, okay, well, this is what Mahomes did. This is what Jackson didn't do. Uh, Patrick's just on a different level. And even the threat of what he will do and the track record, I think it's 
inspires some some panic on the other side. So that's my pulpit on on, on Patrick Mahomes, and I, I I can't say enough about how far ahead of the pack Kevin was on 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 predicting who Ke- who Patrick would end up being. Well, I, I don't want to take any credit for that, uh, but I'll say this: I do think perception, not only by the public but by as Evan just pointed out by your teammates, is is really something here because look. If you had said going into that game that, well, the Ravens are going to hold the Chiefs to 17 points, well, then the Ravens are going to win, you know. And, and so, the, but the but the thing is, uh, I, I don't think it's just fans who, who start to believe in a quarterback because, because Patrick hasn't played his best football in the playoffs, for really, for the most part. Uh, he's played well, and there have been games where he's been great, like he always is. Um, but I wouldn't say like you made the point about Troy Aikman is that yes, he played, he was unbelievable in the playoffs and he rose to the occasion. I always fe- had the feeling with Troy, he just felt like I'm just part of the machine here and I'm just running the machine. And, and then, but if I have to do something big, I can do that because as, as you know, if, if you watch Troy play, I can always remember it, watching him on television, even once he dropped back to throw a pass and his, and his arm started in motion. I remember thinking in my head, Whoever he's throwing to is going to be wide open, and and this guy that he's throwing to is going to be a, it's going to be a perfect pass. You know, you you're always surprised when Troy did something uh, wrong when he when he when he threw an interception or he he forced a, a pass. He just wasn't going to do that, and his teammates knew that. and And I I think that 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 uh, is a really valid question. And the problem is you can't get people to answer it. It's just like the CD Lamp thing that happened it, it, against the Packers. You know what we what we heard was that well this was a question about uh, which route he was supposed to run. I I don't believe that. I believe there was something going on there. I believe that there was a a feeling that because Dak's throws were a little off, that CD was like ah Dak's having one of those kind of games. You know, and you know I think he seemed like he was unhappy to me. And so I really uh, feel like that that there are times. When Patrick Mahomes is out there, even when he's not playing great, I think his teammates believe that yeah, he's Patrick Mahomes, and we're going to win this thing, you know. And, and he's going well, to figure out leadership. I mean, that's just that's sure just a, what leadership inspires, right? And yeah. um, I just I just want to say this as part of a segue. The one the one other thing that we're I think we're we're missing, and that is a consistent element here in this in the Super Bowl, is that. Offenses that have great tight ends, game-changing tight ends, are different-tier offenses, right? Um, The Chiefs have a pretty good one in Travis Kelsey. 49ers have a pretty good one in George Kittle. And I think that just adds a different element to your offense than, than most teams have. It is a different level of player. David, your thoughts about tight ends? Well... Travis Kelsey is also dating someone that George Kittle is not, which will have an impact on the Super Bowl. Well, but, I mean, no, I, I can't I, believe we've talked about football and not gotten into Taylor Swift. Oh, we'll, we'll get into her for uh, her impact on the league here and what this. Uh, again, you now you're you're hearing. Will this be the highest rated, you know, sporting event in broadcast history? I think there's a very good chance it's going to happen. 
Uh, but yeah, j- just the tight ends. I-, I agree with you. I mean, you we've seen more and more good tight ends come through through the years, and look look how important Gronkowski was to everything that uh, Tom Brady did, and that the position has changed. They're also down the field receivers now, which which Kelsey and Kittle both are. But Kelsey and Kittle also in in this in this rush to have vertical threat tight ends to the offense what makes them so good and it is that they still block and they still do the other inline things that a lot of traditional tight ends have done for years so they really are the best of both worlds and this is this is uh, an outstanding uh tight end matchup which you don't often talk about going into a game uh but both of these uh these players Kelsey and Kittle are essential to uh, the outcome, but and one is essential to bringing an even additional amount of scrutiny on the Super Bowl, which is hard to believe could ever happen. But I think we will see it this year. Kevin, is it true that you didn't watch the AFC Championship because you refused to have all that Taylor Swift time on TV? No, I was watching a Taylor Swift concert. Uh, it was a, re- a replay of one. That's what, that's why I was doing that. No. And you know how much you know what air time she got during the game? How much time? Twenty-seven seconds. See, here's the thing about it: we watch Jerry Jones in the press box all the time, and his why? You know, why would I be more offended watching a game seeing Taylor Swift instead of Jerry Jones? I mean, I have to tell heck? you this whole thing about like online and in social media, which I know is not a real world, but there are. There are a lot of people who seem to be really upset by the fact that Taylor Swift gets shown swag surfing in the in the suite. And it was, you know, it was clearly mentioned about Taylor Swift. Never was it mentioned anything other than laudatory about Jason Kelsey basically being shirtless in Buffalo. You know, it, 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 and it climbing is out of the box, whatever that was all about. I, I know it. It just is, it's beyond me. I turned on TV this morning to a news network and they were talking there that because of the Taylor Swift impact now, because of the Taylor Swift impact, the Biden campaign is seeking, actively seeking a Taylor Swift endorsement in the next two weeks. I mean, (laughs) it, it is. It, 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 she's everywhere, and and people. It's it's apparently offended some people's some people's uh, sensibilities. But to me, and I'm just going to say this, and I tweeted this. Look, it appears that Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift seem to like each other. It appears that Travis Kelsey tweet treat tweet and treats treats her sweetly, um, and it appears she's having a good time. And it appears that the Chiefs are also going to the Super Bowl. I don't understand what the problem with any of this is. Well, then you didn't understand also that this is part of a of a secret democratic agenda where it will end with now the NFL will make sure that Kansas City wins another Super Bowl title. And on stage, Kelsey will ask Travis, will ask Taylor to join him, at which time Jason, who you also remember was vaxxed by FISA, and Taylor will announce their endorsement of Big Democrat and Joe Biden. (laughs) I had no idea that was going to happen. 
Kevin, you no, were alive. That, that was see. that was the that was it yesterday. That was the that was the underlying thread yesterday on what all is going on. There is a oh, rabbit hole that you can go down that is very dangerous regarding virtually anything that happens in the world, but something that is as omnipresent as Taylor Swift right now, yes, it can it can take you down many, many levels into different circles of hell. Well, this is why I don't do that. Uh, but, you know, David, you would remember uh, when Jessica Simpson was dating Tony Romo, right? That's yeah. was, was the same sure. thing with that. You know, she, they, they showed her every... Every chance they got, she was hardly the star that that uh, that Taylor is. Uh, she never was, but uh, still, it was a big deal. But that's just what happens, you know. If you get somebody famous out there, look, she's it's the, the same most thing famous that entertainer in the world. Well, this was the same thing that Hollywood would do back in the forties and fifties, and they would try to match up stars and try to Cost act promotion. like they were, yeah. you know, yeah, there's two just, entertainment yeah. properties benefiting from one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so why wouldn't you do it? If you're the NFL and promote even if, even if they weren't, if, if this was completely like they don't even like each other, uh, you could see why the NFL would want to do it, right? I yes. mean, holy cow. So, yeah, it just makes uh, perfect sense and, you know, to do it. I'm not offended by it. It's all, look, it's all entertainment. Let's not make the NFL or football out to be anything more than it is. It's a form of entertainment, okay? It's not, you know, uh, a, a branch of the government. So let's what about let's building let's, uh, character of young men. You don't want to focus on that aspect. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a, there's enough problems in the world without worrying about that. You know, this is we we brought up David Castillo before. This would be right up David's alley. Oh my gosh, this yeah. is what he'd be writing about. Is the whole thing he'd be wanting to sit in the suite with uh, Taylor Swift and writing about that, which I would have loved to have read. So that would have been great. Uh, let's talk a little bit real quickly about the fact that uh, the Eagles have made a couple of hires. I, I guess is Vic Fangio official yet? Is that done? Is no, my, ne- is neither one of them are official in Philadelphia. Last thing on Taylor Swift before we go on, it she is such a big property. I, I I won't disclose like all of our metrics on the Dallas Morning News, but I did see one of the most read stories digitally in the last day was. Taylor Swift and Tony Romo hug after AFC Championship game. Yeah, I saw that too. How about that? So, <laughs> so Tony Romo, remembering his Jessica Simpson days, yeah. uh, tried to get a little more of uh, a mileage out of that kind of thing. Yeah, like nobody sure. lost their minds when Tom when Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen were married, and they were showing Giselle in the suite all the time. Yeah, we didn't. Oh, did some people did. Game. Some people. It, did it's a very did. misogynistic, and it's it's, it's you know, you know they. You know, they, they need to have their mind on football. Why are you being distracted? It's, it's just a, a non-rational response to all Well, that. sure it is. And let's not even dignify that. All right. We, so need, we need another close-up of Andy Reid's frozen mustache as, as he talks into his play-calling sheet, right? That's what yeah. we need. Okay. Let's move I'm on. I'm going to cover my move face on. now the rest of the song. Moving on. So, <laughs> Kellen Moore and Vic Fangio uh, are not official as the coordinators for the Eagles, but they probably – will be soon who knows why that's being held up uh that's uh i i had i gotta tell you i was shocked about the kellen moore thing i i I don't see how he fits what you know the eagles have been doing and would want to do going forward you know uh one of the things that jalen hurts has complained about is throwing the ball down the field he you know he's not as comfortable doing that and would like to, to work more short passes and do that kind of thing maybe that fits that 
I, I don't see how, you know, the best thing that Jalen Hurts does is just take off and run with the ball and, and then his, you know, uh, program runs. Uh, I don't see how that fits with Kellen Moore's history as a play caller, frankly. Uh, but, you know, whatever. That's Kevin, what I think you're burying the lead here, right? What's I mean, but you, you summed it up great in the, in the, in the pregame show. Well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Well, I was going to talk about the fact that, yes, so the Eagles and the Cowboys both have disappointing seasons uh, and or, or certainly endings to their seasons. The Eagles uh, respond by firing both of their coordinators. They kind of already fired one of them. Uh, and then uh, the Cowboys stand pat, which which tells you something about, you know, both organizations. I have long, you know, talked about how – I respect Howie Roseman and what he does. I do think that he is a little more reactionary now than Jerry is, or what Jerry is now. What Jerry used to be, uh, that that that's a different question. Uh, but uh, I I guess I should – let me ask you that question then. So each, each one of you, we'll start with, with Evan. Is this the right thing to do uh, to uh, – to, to, to fire both of his coordinators and move on to something else? Or is that just a reaction to the fact that they had such a unbelievably disastrous finish and you got to do that to appease Philadelphia fans? Well, I mean, it's just like in, in baseball, right? Fire the pitching coach or fire the hitting coach when something goes wrong and you, you can't fire the manager. I, I Certainly, that was an epic collapse on the Eagles part, uh, a, a, a historic collapse. So if, um, if there were, if they were going to make changes, I can't, I can't argue with it. Um, I'm more, I guess I'm more focused on the Cowboys. I, I, I guess I'm more focused on just the on, on the two teams and their perspectives on things, right? I think the Cowboys anticipate that they're going to make a change at defensive coordinator just because they don't think they're going to hold on to Dan Quinn, though I guess the number of jobs is starting to dwindle. Um, so I don't know if that means that the Cowboys were already counting on one guy going, but from my perspective, look, it was a disappointing season for the Eagles and Roseman demanded some accountability. David? Well, yeah, Philadelphia has – both franchises have been run differently here, and let's just focus on a, a very small sample size, say the last two to three years. Um Philadelphia has been much more aggressive in acquiring personnel and free agency. Uh, it has been much less tolerant of uh, inferior. If the record is not fair, there are significant changes made in the coaching staff uh, across the board. Uh, the Cowboys have not displayed that. Um, I'll also say that you look at two of the last three years and what the Cowboys have won two of the last three division titles to one for Philadelphia. Philadelphia has gotten farther a Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, they made changes to both coordinators this year, but this is the third consecutive year now that Jalen Hurts will have a, a different offensive coordinator in his ear and the offensive coordinator they appear to have gotten not official yet, but there's no reason to think it won't happen. Uh, is a guy that the Cowboys moved on from. And look, I, I think I think that Kellen Moore is is a very creative, very good offensive coordinator. 
But to me, you you hit on the point when you said, is he a fit for what they want to do? Or are they going to want to go in a different direction here? Because he is not a run-first coordinator or even run-50-50 coordinator by any means. Uh, he leans toward the pass. The league leans toward the pass. I would say he leans in even more uh, into the pass than many uh, coordinators in the league. And I'm not saying in a stubborn way. I mean, he's, you know, he understands the the importance of a run game. And and Elliott had good numbers here uh, when he was offensive coordinator. I mean, it's not like he abandoned the run and wouldn't do it. But his real creativity is in the passing game. And it's in, and one thing I think McCarthy did this year that, that Kellen Moore didn't was kind of blend the run game to the pass game more. Uh, now it didn't get them any farther, um, but you did see improvement in how Dak Prescott played. But th- this is just interesting to me because, and, and what was the criticism of Philadelphia's offense this year? Well, they strayed too far from the run game. They were such a powerful running team, they forgot what made them successful offensively the year before because they got enamored with their shiny objects at wide receiver and A.J. Brown and, you know, all they have there, and they lean too much into that direction. Well, I don't I don't see Kellen Moore bringing balance back to that offense. I see him going, well, no, you have some of the best – this is one of the best receiving cores in the league. Why wouldn't we lean into it? Uh, so, it, to me, this is going to be an interesting one. Very quickly, I'll also say, remember – when they hired Nick Sirianni, Kellen Moore interviewed there twice. So upper management had talked to him individually, certainly liked him. And uh, when he became available with Jim Harbaugh going to the uh, Chargers, uh, they certainly didn't waste any time. And it, it, even though it's not official yet, it doesn't appear uh, that they wasted any time in going after. And that's who they wanted. Kevin, you know, can but, I just say one thing before before you get into this just one quick thing there's so much of this is perception and narrative right i mean early on in in the cowboys drought when jerry was making changes right and left with the narrative was oh jerry's too reactionary jerry's too emotional on this stuff now now jerry's saying okay we're gonna we're gonna stick with what we've got and it's jerry is um the voice of reason the, not, well, not the voice of reason, but he's he's. He'll too, never be the voice of reason, Kevin. I think <laughs> you know that. You just threw that out for a purpose. He's too passive. He's too passive. And the Eagles have been to a Super Bowl more recently, so the narrative is: well, Howie Roseman knows what he's doing. Um, and and the, the truth is, both of these teams just had disappointing finishes to their season. Um, it's just interesting to see the, the how they're going about things differently, and also I think how the those changes are perceived. Yeah. Well, two things here. First of all, Jerry's biggest regret as a coach uh, or as an owner of the team and GM was firing Chan Gailey after two seasons. Uh, He has said that publicly. Um, So uh, I think there's, he has been concerned about being a knee jerk reactor. Also the history of uh, these things are that as owners get older, they, they get more patient. They stay with the coaches longer that's just across the board in the history of the league. Uh, they, they don't fire coaches as fast as they did, not as impetuous. I think it's the same thing as that. You, 
usually guys have been married six times. The, the last one they were married to, they were married to the longest. You know, so I, I think that, that that's just the history of people when they get older. They just they don't uh, they're not firing so fast. Um, I do think that's interesting to me. We haven't talked about Vic Fangio. We're going to do that very fast because we got to get out of this segment. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the, the perception about Jalen Hurts, and there was a narrative going around here at the, at the end of the season. Has the league figured him out now about how to beat him? And, and I think that uh, that's a legitimate question. I don't know that there is a way necessarily to beat Jalen Hurts, but he certainly wasn't as effective this year as he'd been in the past. I think some of the fact that they did not lean on the running game as much is probably part of that reason. Uh, I think you have to play a certain kind of style to make Jalen Hurts work the best for you. Uh, same thing to me is going to be answering now with Vic Fangio as a defensive coordinator in the same division uh, with the Cowboys because, uh, as we recall, when he was a coach of, of the Broncos and they beat the Cowboys, uh, he said that basically there was a blueprint for stopping uh, Dak, Cow- Dak uh, Prescott in the Cowboys offense. Uh, and then he worked a little while as kind of a consultant for the Eagles, and then, of course, he was a defensive coordinator for the Dolphins this year. Uh, and the Dolphins made uh, the Cowboys' offense look pretty bad this year. So in the four years that uh, that Mike McCarthy has been the head coach of the Cowboys, Vic Fangio has been on teams that are 3-1 and one against uh, a Mike. So I think this should be a real concern for the Cowboys going into this next season. It's going to be a tougher schedule. They're going to have a defensive coordinator in Philadelphia who, who may kind of have a feel for how to stop whatever it is the Cowboys want to do. Uh, whether that's a, a small sample size and we shouldn't judge it uh, or give it too much weight. I think it's certainly something to consider going forward. Uh, we'll, we'll find out anyway. And very quickly, for all the criticism of Dak, one thing no one can criticize is his record against the division. He has dominated the NFC East since he's been in. And if if one team can get a handle on him on how to do that, they give themselves an inside track to winning the division. No question about that. I, I was citing that to, to someone the other day was asking me about Dak, and I said, when Dak thinks he's going to win and, and he thinks he has a leg up, I, I give him all the, the, the credit in the world, and, and, and the, that's a perfect example, is the East. Yes, I think he thinks that I can beat all of these teams, uh, and, and when he does that, uh, I think that he's really good. I don't think it's a matter of him choking. I think it's a matter of just his confidence level and, and playing uh, at, at – at even, I, I would call it even speed. Don't don't be speeding things up, Dak. Just just take what's coming to you. And when he does that, he plays very well. It's when he gets all emotionally charged is when he has problems. Speaking right, of speeding things up, speeding things up. We're moving over now uh, into uh, baseball talk. The Rangers, uh, they uh, uh, well, well, Evan, explain to us what you want to talk about with the Rangers and and uh, and they they've signed a couple of relievers. Now they signed a starting pitcher who won't be around until I think 2026 or something like that. That's their new MO. Um, but they, by adding David Robertson, uh, is what is the difference between this and signing Will Smith? Is he the new Will Smith, Evan? Um, in a lot of ways, uh, from the right hand side, uh, probably has a little bit more uh, zip in his arm than Will Smith did at this point in time. Uh, the Rangers needed – look, they've now got, with Kirby Yates and David Robertson 
and Jose Leclerc and Josh Spores, they've got four guys that have got some closing experience. They've got, uh, again, options. And, you know, sometimes when you say you've got options, it means you don't have any definitive solution at this point in time. But I think that adding the two veteran bullpen arms were what the Rangers needed to do. I know that the sexy arm out there was Josh Hader, but spending $19 million a year on Josh Hader, quite frankly, I just don't think is good money uh, in terms of of a long-term situation. And the Rangers need to think. Uh, I, I'm not trying to save Ray, Ray Davis any money, but the Rangers do need to think about some of the implications of where they're going payroll-wise. With Robertson's contract, they're over the, the threshold for the tax, the CBT tax in 2024, which means they'll be a second-time payer, which now means instead of paying 20%, they're going to pay 30% on the overage above $237 million. All of this becomes all that much more important because of the question that everybody wants to know, when are they going to sign Jordan Montgomery? And to that, Kevin, I think you have to look at what signing Jordan Montgomery is actually going to cost this team. Because if the Rangers were to sign him to a $20, $25 million a year contract, that drives the payroll up to over $260 million. And at two fifty seven. million, you get yet another surcharge on taxes, which would drive the tax up to 42.5%, puts you in a position where next year you'd potentially be paying at least 50% on any overages. And it doesn't handle the situation of what happens if you need to add some pieces at the deadline again this year. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about going to a position where you could you could cross the last barrier and you could have to move your draft pick back 10 spots in 2025, there's a lot of complications there to getting a a deal done with Jordan Montgomery. And so I think it comes back to all of this, that they addressed their most pressing need, which was the bullpen. I still think before this this offseason is out, there will be another pitcher. It may not be Jordan Montgomery. It's not going to be Blake Snell. But there may be another starting pitcher that they add. It won't be a significant contract because they need they need some depth, but it gets back to the core question here, which has always been and remains: When is this organization going to develop some starting pitching? Until they do that, they're going to face a situation of either not having enough pitching or having to pay retail prices for it. All right, two things. First of all, on on the bullpen and the relief guys, I I, I know that. We felt like at the end, Will Smith was just—you just couldn't run him out there anymore unless you were throwing to a, you know, to a left-handed hitter. Yeah, so, you couldn't—you couldn't let him throw fastballs. If, if he threw fastballs, yeah. he was going to get crushed. Right, and that was that was hard to watch. But you know, his save percentage was pretty good. What he had, twenty-two saves. I think he uh, ended up like twenty-three or thirty. I don't have it in front of me. Um, yeah, I mean, look—if if they had not had Will Smith, they would not have gotten to the postseason. Last Correct. Year. He stepped in at a time and did a very nice job for a while. And that and, and really that's what you know fans I think miss so much is that a, a baseball season is so long. Lots of times you're just trying to get people to get you through rough patches here. And Will Smith did that. And and so if a guy like David Robertson does that, you know, if he can help in, in these times, uh then you know, then then he served his purpose. And and that's the way you have to look at these seasons. So that leads me to my second point about the pitching. So we we've talked about the fact that oh gosh, you got Tyler Malley, you you you've got uh, Jacob Degrom, 
You got Max Scherzer. All those guys are coming back in the second half of the season. So all they got to do is get to that point. Well, what if they're 15 games back at, at, at the de- you know at the trade deadline? You know what? What if the the rotation just completely falls apart? It doesn't matter if those guys are coming back. You know, so and I think that's what's probably in fans' minds. The second part of that is is that the fact that Jordan Montgomery hasn't signed with someone else should tell us something, doesn't it? I mean, don't you think that a lot of clubs out there feel like, listen, Jordan Montgomery just got hot, and we don't want to be giving him a hundred and fifty million dollar deal. I I don't think it's that Jordan Montgomery just got hot. I think there is belief that Jordan Montgomery's Jordan Montgomery, particularly with his curveball, has has taken another step. But there are considerations. He is thirty one, um, and he is a big bodied pitcher. And the, I, I would think that, however you want to assess risk, there's probably an elevated risk there um, in terms of an injury. Uh, I, I think the other part of that is that, uh, you know, I I think the Rangers would like Jordan Montgomery back. I think Jordan Montgomery would like to be back. But I do think, yeah, there's been something of a, of a depressed market for him, probably less than Scott Boris said. And I, I, I don't think that fans should take the idea that he's not signed yet as an implicate as some kind of indication that the minute the TV deal is resolved, however it is resolved and the Rangers get some more money uh, that, that, that there's a handshake deal. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, maybe the market does drop a little bit more for Montgomery and maybe there is some creative deal to be done. I did mention in the column I wrote that just went online this morning, the Rangers have $5 million in deferred money into David Robertson. What's significant about that is Ray Davis is not like giving out deferred money. Uh, he doesn't like that because it it, it kind of de- devalues the franchise a little bit on the back end. This is a very small amount of deferred money, but it's the principle of the thing. And more teams have gone back to the idea of deferring money and letting it be somebody else's problem down the road that maybe this does open a pathway for Chris Young and Scott Boris, who have worked really, really well together on contracts, to come together and come up with some kind of of, of, uh, of of solution. At best, I still think it's less than 50% that Jordan Montgomery returns to the Texas Rangers. I think, to your point, what needs to happen is the way the Rangers addressed the bullpen last year, I think is going to be the way they try and address the starting rotation in the first half this year. They're going to run a bunch of different guys out there. They may they may pluck the waiver wire whenever they can, but they're not looking for long-term contracts and long-term solutions. Those are the guys that are coming from the minor leagues. They're looking for guys who will help them get through April, May, and June until Scherzer, Malley, and, and, and they hope DeGrom come back. I think that's all all well and good, and I don't think I'm not saying that I disagree with any of that uh, plan that the Rangers are doing. Uh, I think you're taking a real risk of squandering the goodwill that you have built up by winning the franchise's first World Series title by going out in the first half of this season and just falling flat on your face. Uh, and I think that's that's a lot to gamble with. I, I know about. I know all about the, the, these taxes and, and all of that. And boy, you don't want to pay an extra 20 or $30 million on top of everything else you had to pay this year. But I also know that they're going to make a lot more money this year than they've ever made before. The, the, the season ticket 
prices are going up. Jersey sales are going up. Everything is going up. And so they're going to make a lot more money this year than they've made in the past, simply riding that wave of the world title. And the last thing you want to do now is after finally doing something for your fans that no one else had ever done is to, is to fall on your face. Because I, I got to tell you, that will really pull the plug out from everything. If, if, I, if I don't want to pull the plug out from everything, but I, I do think it's a, it would be a missed opportunity. Let's put it that way. Well, that's a, yeah, at the very least, it's a missed opportunity. There's no question about that. I just I do think that fans would feel like they'd been cheated. That's the last thing you want to do now in this kind of situation is when you win is to make your fans feel like, well, we're we're so stupid we couldn't capitalize on that. You know, we just won a world title and we couldn't even and, and, and take that next step because you do owe your fans that uh, because you are going to make more money. I have a hard time hearing the whole thing about, Ooh, I don't want to pay that tax. You know, that's just too much. You know, I, I think I, this is part of it is a little bit is the price of, of, of playing with the big boys. And, you know, some of these things will go away too. You know, the, really the only bad contracts going, I don't would say it's a bad contract, but it's Jacob DeGrom's contract. Right. Uh, you know, and you could, I, I don't even say, think you could say that Corey Seager's contract is going to be a bad contract anymore. The way he played, you know, last year and the way he played in the postseason. I mean, at this point, it's like, what the heck? Certainly not right now. I mean, you can't say it's it, 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 that it's got any possibility of being a bad contract. And I, I think, look, I, I think everything you just said is very fair. Um, because at the end of the day, the Rangers' value probably went from $2.3 billion to close to $3 billion over the course of the last year. It, it's increased in value, and and, and Davis and, and Neil Liebman are 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 seeing. We'll see returns on that. Um, but I also know that this is you know the the price of doing business. If there's one thing that you and I don't like, it's paying taxes. And if there's one thing billionaires are just like us, they hate paying taxes. And the Rangers are looking at the possibility of paying a tax on a tax. So. It does. It does impact how guys operate the business, and there are real penalties involved. I is it the right call? I don't. I don't know if it is, but I, I do think that there is some thought that that a five year deal for Jordan Montgomery at twenty five million dollars a deal is not a good idea um because you yeah, and i don't argue with that either because that's a great point uh is he the guy you want to give it to i just say that that man even let, let's say with jacob Degrom and max scherzer come back and tyler malley it's not like all three of those guys were indestructible either you know but whether they come back and jacob Degrom comes back for two weeks and then he goes right back on the dl there you is know, real risk the here. there is no doubt that there is real risk yeah, and that's the thing about Jordan Montgomery. He has been fairly stable. You know, his health has been fairly, fairly good. And so that's why you would kind of lean on that. And then plus the fact that when you talk about all these things and what you're giving the fans, at some point you're having to pay for the fact that you haven't done a good job of, of drafting and developing pitchers. That's just – that's your fault, you know. And, and so if, if that is your fault and you haven't done a good job in it, well, then you're going to have to pay for it at some point. Uh, if they – if one of those guys had stepped up, you know, one of the big drafts, you know, Jack Leiter or, or Kumar Rocker had had come step forward and were ready to go into the to the rotation. Well, then, hey, there's no well, argument. That, I right? mean, this is this. If you're a fan, you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, that they didn't develop any starting pitching last year. Um, 
and the Rangers are saying, yeah, but we think that Leiter and, and Rocker's recovery and uh, uh, um, uh, Zach Kent and Owen White and Cole Wynn, they're all getting closer and closer. And if you're a Rangers fan, you've said, yeah, I've heard this song before over and yeah. over and over again. And until they develop pitching, it's going to remain a, a significant question. Yeah, no question. Yeah, very right, quickly, I, I know we need to move on very quickly, but Go ahead. you know the I I disagree with you a little bit, Kevin. Even if they stumble in the first half, I I think the unexpected euphoria of last season will carry the fan base through this year, regardless of what happens. But to me, it's very interesting. You. You go back to the last local team to unexpectedly win a title in the Mavericks. And what was their approach basically coming off of that season? Hey, we caught lightning in a bottle. We can't do this again. Uh, Don't put those expectations on us. That would be the absolute wrong way for the Rangers to go about it and and address it. Because they're in a different position. They have more players across the board that can sustain this. No question about that, and that's exactly what happened there. And then looking back, that's what it is. Yeah, well, that's probably right. Uh, the, the thing is, is that in the long term, it's like after next season when you don't want fans looking back on it and saying, "See, this was the thing that, that went wrong." They want to see that you were all in because the fans feel like they're all in. They want to feel like management is all in. All right, that's going to do it for our baseball segment. We're going to uh, move over into a little potpourri here, talk about a couple of things, and starting with uh, a very crazy week for Luka Doncic. Uh, very crazy week. You know, it started with uh, I feel Slovenia, which I was out in the in the uh, in the suite for that. Got to sit with the ambassador to the U.S. from Slovenia, a very interesting guy, showing me pictures in his phone of him with Joe Biden. You know, and and uh, telling me stories about uh, how he wants to put a statue in Slovenia because George Patton Operation Cowboy saved the Lipizzaner stallions who were. Being, uh, had been stolen basically by the Nazis. And uh, as the Russians were closing in uh, on Czechoslovakia, uh, as he put it to me, we were afraid that, that the Russians would either seize them or eat them, meaning the horses. Uh, so that was a that was a very famous uh, uh, operation by George Pat. But any, at any rate, it was a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately, Luca did not get out to address those fans who came. That was a kind of a, a sad sight, uh, sitting there with them, waiting for over an hour for Luca to come and say hello. And he just came by and had a picture taken and then moved on. That was that. Uh, biggest celebrity in Slovenia, though. Bigger even than Melania Trump. And then uh, uh, we had a game where Luca was going down the floor. He'd been a fan, a son's fan, had been heckling him during, throughout the game. And it's, at one point said something along the lines of, yeah, you need to get your butt uh, on the uh, Stairmaster because uh, you're, you're, uh, you're out of shape, which has been an old complaint about Luca. And at that point, he turned and motioned for security to come and, and maybe escort that guy out. The guy was not escorted out. He, uh, security guard talked to him, and then he got up and left on, of his own volition. Uh, but uh, Luca took a lot of flack for that. And then he goes out the next game and scores 73 points. Uh, so it was a, uh, a very large week for Luca Doncic. So, David, uh, I guess my, my question to ask is this. Uh, has there been a more... Uh, Interesting talent in Dallas than Luka Doncic. Certainly, you know, uh, we had a guy, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, 
who changed the position of power forward forever, uh, the, the, who made, who kind of invented the, the concept of the stretch four. So uh, he was a unique talent, but even Dirk isn't capable of the things that Luka Doncic is. And still, uh, there are people, and I have to put myself down as one of them, who question sometimes uh, what exactly what Luka Doncic is. I guess, I guess what I feel like sometimes is, what is this guy capable of? Well, I think it's the it's the volatile nature of him. I mean, he he does come across as the temperamental artist in some ways, right? Uh, seems very high strung, um, highly competitive, has a sense of humor, but only to a point, um, and uh, gets very sensitive to criticism. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's he. He's a very complex, I think, sports personality in that point. And look, every Mark has had volatile sports personalities. Michael Irvin was certainly a volatile sports personality here in Dallas, but a lot of his were off the court. A, a lot of with Luca, it's just from what we've seen, it's been confined to the games. Uh, his interactions with the officials, his interactions with fans. Um, and really, does a player uh, to that level, does he really need to – is he so sensitive that he asks a fan to be removed because of his running dialogue over the course of the game? Um, you know, you're letting that get in your head when you're a competitor at this level, really. So um, th- there's always that that uh, friction there in in assessing who he is. But but just as far as a, a sheer generational talent, I mean, just no question and. And, you know, because you always have to try to, you know, as soon as you have the initial response on 73, you know, wow, then you had some people come back. But, yeah, look at all these 60-plus games this year in the league. It's just becoming easier to do. Teams aren't playing. That is all just rubbish. That's complete rubbish. Scoring 73 points in a game with the number of assists he had in the flow of the game – uh, it's just remarkable, and let's go from that game through last night, where they came back from down 16 uh, to beat Orlando. Now you can quibble with the fact they were down at home to an Orlando team that's not good and had to come back, but he had another outstanding game. And just saw this stat this morning, just before we went on, he has generated in the last three games, either through his points or assists. He has generated an average of 79.7 points in a three-game stretch. Only one player in NBA history has ever generated more. That's Wilt Chamberlain. Ah, yeah, but it's easier today, David. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So much easier. I have a couple of observations here, starting with the most important one, which is I really have a problem with the fact that after he scored 73 points, the best the Mavericks could come up with was for him to hold a little white piece of paper with a 73 scrawled in Sharpie on it. Now, I know that's how Wilt Chamberlain presented his 100. That's right. Come on. His 100-point night. But look, this is 2023. 2024, We've got better capabilities. They could have Photoshopped that even. The second thing I think is that, listen, 
the it's a bad look for athletes to constantly complain to officials. And then when that bleeds over, you become oversensitive because you've said something about a fan, whether the fan said something inappropriate or not. And so that's a bad look. Now, Brad Townsend, our Mavericks writer, would kind of followed him to the, to the TNT studios the next night. And his take was that Luca showed an awful lot of accountability about that, that incident. Um, but you want I, I, you think it kind of motivated. I, I think everything motivated him a little bit. I, I I think that yeah, the Hawks are not a great. The Hawks are well. The Hawks are the most irrelevant team in in professional sports. But nevertheless, I mean, seventy three points is a historic night. And I the only thing I could come up and with that's in any way similar for me was and we were talking about generational talents again. Uh, this is a guy who had his own issues off the field. But when Josh Hamilton was right, he was he was Mickey Mantle esque. He was he was larger than life, and and baseball and basketball have those individual game type performances that stand out. Josh had the four homer game against Baltimore in 2012, in which he also went five for five. He had a double, and I think the double was hit harder than any of the home runs. And and so these things stand out for me as like truly historic individual nights for performers in, in, in DFW. I, I think the difference between all of this and, and Dirk, which, you know, you mentioned Dirk at, at the outset of this is that there was no pretension and there were no, there were no issues with Dirk. He was just, Dirk was a hundred percent authentic. And I think people love that. And, and, and because of it, um, he stands on a different class than all these other guys. Yeah. There's no question about that. From that standpoint, I think the thing with Dirk, I mean, with uh, with Luca, uh, it's the same thing we talked about with uh, you know Taylor Swift earlier. People just don't, you know, it's like the people who, who are against all that are like, oh, did, didn't she have enough to do and with concerts and stuff? Did she have to intrude over into into football? And, and a little bit of of what the Luca thing is now, people are just now getting tired of watching him complain. And so Luca's hurting himself with this stuff. He's hurting his perception with fans by doing this. It's like every time they see him now, they just go, oh, my gosh, here he is again complaining to, to the refs. It just is tiresome. And, and Luca is very good. After games and press comments or whatever, saying I screwed up, I didn't play well. He's very good about all that. But that's not the point. You know, the point is, is that but you're like a little kid. You're He's got to control it the in floor. the moment better. He's got to yeah. control it in the moment better. You know, I had a, a, one of the games my my son was playing with one summer, and he was playing with a guy that was a uh, was a senior, or actually he graduated already. He shouldn't even have been playing on the team, and he was yelling at guys on the field and all this kind of stuff. I I told the coach, "This isn't. This is you can't have this. You can't have a guy yelling at his teammates on the field during play. I've never seen anything like this before." And so the guy's coach said, oh, well, then you should talk to him about it. I thought, okay, I will. And I did. Well, Luca, and Luca just invites – he invites fans to do what that guy did because clearly people see that he, you know, he will whine and he will complain and they feel like they can get under his skin. Yeah. Well, there's no question about that. And, and he has. And, and he just needs to understand that he, he, you can't do that. It doesn't matter. The apologies later don't make up for it. Uh, they don't. Uh, people – that that's fine. That he does that. It keeps him from being people thinking he's a bad guy. They just get tired of of, of hearing hearing him and watching him, and so it obscures all the great things that he's doing on the floor. 
Luca needs to do several things, and that's the thing I mentioned earlier at the top. If Luca could get himself in better shape and and be uh, at the physical peak that he should be for a guy his age, and he's about to turn twenty five, uh, then uh, and then if he could stop complaining so much, you know what what is the limit for this guy? You know that that's the thing. He could he's a great player now. He's one of the five or ten best players in the league now. If if he would do all of that, it's like the conversation I had with Jerry West a couple of years ago. Yeah, he could be number one. He could be the best stop player in the complaining. league. I, he's got a different type of body. Just stop complaining. That that's that's the one thing he needs to do. Uh, but but talking about sensitive, before we get out of here, I just want you to give thirty seconds on this, Kevin, and then we go. How is Texas going to function in the SEC with this whole horns down thing? Did you see the thing at Brigham Young where the fans yeah. were had had T-shirts that spelled out horns down and they were asked to remove them? How is Texas going to function in the SEC? Well, they got to stop complaining about it. The more you complain about it, the more people are going to do it, right? Rodney Terry, the, the basketball coach at UT, complained about it on the air. It's like, come on, stop talking about it. You, you, you don't get it. The more you complain about it, the more people will do it. That's just exactly. the way people are. You have to learn that. Okay? Just like us, people complain about us, and so what do we do? We make these podcasts longer and longer and longer. See? Yeah, that's right. No question about it. All right. We, we appreciate you hanging in there with us. We know it was a long one. We hope you stayed all the way to the end. You'll be back next week, and we'll talk some more about the Super Bowl and getting ready for that and anything else that's popped up on our radar. So from everybody in here and everybody out there, thank you, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.